first I would like to introduce the honorable panel, uh, Mrs. Judy Willis, whom we already know. Thank you for joining here in this uh, impromptu panel. The same, Will Ord. Thank you, Will. And for those who were not in this room and uh, attended other breakout sessions, I want to introduce you to James Clements. James Clements is brought to us by Oxford University Press. He's an expert in primary education. At this moment, he's the, the creative director of Shakespeare and More. Ample experience in what's got to do with the literacy in primary. So, Thank you for joining us on this very short uh, on pro impromptu invitation. Oh, thank you very much. So thank you. Thank you very much. First question. Let, we are going to go with um, the talker of the group. Yes? And that's uh, Judy. Judy, if we were to think about um, what uh, the school would look like, how these ideas would materialize. As regards students as protagonists and motivated uh, students, what would this look like in a school if we really cared for this? To what me, we we've all seen that. It exists. It's called preschool, it's kindergarten, it's the curiosity the interest-driven, it's trying things, they don't work, no problem. If someone knocks over their blocks, it's not the end of the world. They have empathy, they have compassion, they build it again. So following the model that they come to us with, and we see the brain really wants to learn. Yeah, for survival, but it likes its dopamine. So it would look like kindergarten, the passion, the curiosity, and we're the facilitators. Thank you. Will, how do you imagine it? How do you see it? <laughs> I find that a really hard question to answer because I've seen so many examples um, in so many different places that there's uh, cultural differences, there's differences in vision, there's differences in uh, the people who are part of that community. Perhaps the one thing that they have all in common is a kind of a, a living, breathing belief and authenticity in what they're doing. And conjoined with that is uh, a power relationship where there's respect and freedom between teachers and pupils. Um, there's a feeling of we're in this together and there's a f one, one question I ask myself when I go into schools is, is this a, a school of compliance or a school of commitment? Uh, for me, the difference is between a, a grape and a raisin. You know, you, you, you walk into that school, and if you get the sense that people are, are doing it because they have to, um, we, we've got grades and tests to chase, we've been told by the government to do all of this sort of stuff, there's a feeling of, yeah, we'll do it, but we've got to. Mm -hmm. I think in a place which has got its own heart and vision, agreed amongst itself, and unique to that community, I, I don't believe in this sort of one-size-fits-all thing. It's got to adapt and come from the hearts of the people who are there, the kids, the parents, the teachers, the community. Um, if, it's, if they've got a clear, shared understanding of what we're after, then it's coming from 
the heart. It's, you get commitment, and that's a very different feeling in a school. And it's that energy that allows them to take that evolutionary journey from having to do what we're told into where can this go? And what's lovely is seeing the variety in which that expresses itself. So um, I think it's a, it's the, the starting point has to be about the motivation for why we're doing this. And if you like, that, talk, schools talk about having a vision. And they sort of paint, we want all children to be massively confident. And uh, I had one, one discussion with a school. And they were talking about their vision. And they had a discussion about, um, yeah, we, we want all children to go beyond their potential. And we, we had to have a little discussion about that, that that's impossible. And how would you know what their potential is? So it's got to be a real, meaningful Earth vision, um, which we as a community want to achieve. I think that's pretty much it. I thought that the Lego bricks was a very simple um, idea, but powerful. And many teachers approach me, because everyone has got Lego. If not Lego, you've got bricks at school. And it really uh, gives order, boost, invites for real uh, participation. So I really um, discussed with some other uh, attendants, and it was a very simple activity, but uh, could bring in a concrete, I think it's a concrete activity that can really trigger uh, lots of uh, independent, I would say, thinking and discussions. And James, what do you think about this? Hello. Hey, it works this time. Brilliant. Um, oh, it does now. Um, if you're wondering, this is not Guy Claxton with the dyed hair. I'm someone <laughs> different. But there you go. Um, so my, my kind of main area of research is, is language and English teaching and reading and writing. So maybe I could take an example from that. And I always think with, with the field of kind of English and with books and literature and text, there's always a kind of slight tension between what I want to do, which is give children choice and give them voice, and also kind of my knowledge and the school's knowledge of kind of books that are going to open new worlds to them and introduce them to new ideas. And there's always this kind of slight tension between me thinking, I want them to choose, but also I want them to read this because it's amazing and it's brilliant. And if I give them a free choice, they might not get to read that or get to do it. So there's always this kind of slight kind of tightrope to walk in between the two. There's um, uh, something that's very popular in the UK at the moment, which is very nice, which um, seems like a nice kind of example of something like this is um, a lot of schools run with teachers run with their classes they run what's called a book world cup so to decide which book they're going to study or which they're going to look at they choose maybe eight books that they think are going to be great and then the children run a round of 16 and then they run semi-finals and a quarter final so each vote sort of knocks a book out until you're left with a winner at the end that the children kind of mostly wanted to read the teacher has got to pick all of the books beforehand, so you know they're going to be great, interesting, wonderful books. And then, of course, once you've got that, you've got one book you're going to read together as a class, and then you end up with, you know, seven other books or 15 other books that are there in the classroom. If someone voted for theirs, they didn't get their choice through, then they get to pick it up and read it in a group with their friends or whatever it might be. So their choices are kind of still valued, but they kind of have this ownership of things. So I suppose little things like that, perhaps. Choice. Choice has always been a very good... And respecting their choice, I think. And respecting yeah. their choices. Yeah. And now it's your moment for Mentimeter.com and see which are the concrete activities 
and actions that you are providing and feeding this conference with. We you can you see the code yes. there on screen. You can submit, it says questions because we're using a mechanism for upvoting once people submit their ideas. You can also click and vote for other ideas that you like so that they will be prioritized. We encourage you to send us in your specific ideas about things you can do in schools. Um, there's a dual objective to this activity. On the one hand, this is a sharing space where we will legitimately embody the idea of crowdsourcing, of learning from one another. And no less important, we will have our voices heard. This is a legitimate expression of some of the most committed teachers in our schools and the collective voice of our teachers who want to do this in their schools is going to be heard through this, through this activity. So please, um, and we encourage you to send in your specific ideas. And I'll be scrolling as you do. Offering Choice has got already four likes, five, seven, I think that in a few months they're going to rub out the likes in WhatsApp, is it? Or, or so let's use them today. Disruption. I don't understand that one. Uh, disruption as an active. Yeah, we need to be very specific about our ideas. Yes. Okay. By the end of the conference, all this information will be um, gathered and you will be able to share it. So you will have your own concrete ideas, plus the speakers, plus others. Kindergarten, redefining assessment, teachers as facilitators, self-esteem, collaborative learning, students give opportunities to express themselves. I guess disruption is about activities that uh, change the pace of the classroom or something innovative. Okay, and we have four votes so that we don't have any more desks. Planning. You can use menti.com if you want to in the classroom. Okay, I think we can, we we can move on the to, the, to the next one, yes. Great. So Thank the, you. the next question, and this goes for uh, Judy, is uh, how would uh, failure, I mean, how would learning from mistakes, from failure, and doing away with fear look like in the classroom? Which would, could be concrete actions in which we can really um, 
put in the picture mistake as something that it's okay and all right? My sense is, we can go back to the kindergarten model, where little kids, they get up, they try to walk, they fall down. They're not ashamed, they're not embarrassed. They get up, giggle, and try it again. We start learning to be embarrassed. We start getting messages that people are judging us. So in a situation of continuing communication from teacher to teacher as year goes on, from parent to teacher, and from student to teachers, instead of the transcript following them and just their standardized tests and their disciplinary actions, the things that we find from our kid watching. What are their strengths? What picks them up when they're down? What are their interests? And absolutely modeling our own mistakes and pointing out the essential value of learning. If you already know something so well that you don't make mistakes, then you're not learning anything. The only time you're learning is when you don't already know it. That means going from not knowing something to knowing something, or knowing something better. If there are no mistakes along the line, you're wasting your time. Mistakes are the pathway to learning. It shows you are actively learning. And that message to learners, and a simple thing from teachers, avoiding the word the. What is the, the answer? on tests and questions. And even if it sounds that way, not stopping and saying, what else? I love the example that uh, you talked about individual response tools as a way of uh, responding, keeping, could you tell the audience, because not all of them, you were able to choose two speakers. So maybe some of you couldn't uh, reach Judy's breakout session, and she talked about individual response tools. Could you tell them about them? Sure. And thank you for those who are being patient and hearing this again. But it's the one thing that I would change if someone said to you, keep this in mind, what is the one thing I can do tomorrow? Bless you all for tomorrow going back to class. But what is the one thing you could do tomorrow that would make the biggest difference without a whole lot of effort? My answer to that is individual response tools. We talked about how the brain likes to make predictions. It, it enjoys that because it knows that maybe it's gonna get some feedback that it's right and get some dopamine. But what stops it from making predictions is other people will say the answer or people will hear what they say and it will be wrong. So individual response tools take advantage of each brain getting to think, getting to grow its dendrites, getting to evaluate information. And when the opening of a class starts with the teacher brings a bird into the room, what's that doing here? So students are asked, why do you think? Whatever the question is, or the curiosity is, or the and excitement is each student gets to make their individual prediction instead of hearing one person. So it could be as simple as a little whiteboard, as 
fingers up independently, but a way for each student to individually make their prediction without having to worry that others see or that they'll be wrong. And that brain, if their brain is invested that they get to make a prediction without it going to someone else, that brain is on and that brain is listening. And especially if they can hold up their whiteboard or their magic pad or click it in later. So their first thought may have been one they, not that was wrong, but that they want to change. That's life. So if you have a clicker or a whiteboard or a magic pad, make a prediction, hold it up, teacher sees it, and then as the learning goes on, because the brain now wants to know, hey, was I right? Could I change it? Do so. Revision. That's real life. It's individual, and only the brain that gets to predict and think grows the dendrites. So don't deprive any learner of their chance to make a prediction safely. Thank you. Will? If I was going to target one thing to change in the classroom and the school, <clears throat> to encourage that kind of um, courageous, risk-taking, independent, adventuresome attitude, I would probably pick how we give praise and feedback. Um, in essence, I'm going to put a lot of work down to three words here. If I was going to praise something, I would go for effort, strategy, and practice. To praise or feedback on those things. Um, to avoid praising them as a fixed thing, a fixed person. So, and, and parents, the blood leave their face when I say this to them. I said, do you ever say to your kids, you're very clever? And they go, oh, yes, like this. And I, and I said, that's, that's, maybe that's not such a good thing to do. And they, Why? Because they are at least, and this is drawing on the, the extensive research from Carol Dweck and the growth mindset thing, of course. If you praise them as a person, as a fixed thing, and say, you're very clever, you're very capable, you're the, you're the cream, you're going places, you're giving them a repeated message that you are up there. That's what you are. So you're at this high level. And, of course, there's no learning without struggle and failure and difficulty. But very often, a child who's been told, you're very clever, feels that I shouldn't struggle because I'm clever. I shouldn't get things wrong. Um, I, you know, they, they tend to be perfectionists, or what I call the brittle bright. You know, they, they seem to score very well, but my God, they, they're so frightened of making mistakes and, and learning properly. So they've been told they're up there. A good teacher gets them in the pit, gives them challenge, where they will make mistakes, because that's where you learn. So they've got two messages coming in. They think I'm up there, but inside, self-esteem going south, I realize they've got me wrong. I'm actually down here. I'm not as able as they think I am. And this is the imposter syndrome again. You feel a fake. People think I'm up there. I know actually I'm down here because I'm making a lot of mistakes in here. 
So this can cause a great deal of anxiety and failure aversion and perfectionism and stress and you know, squirting the cortisol into the amygdala and making them uh, learning averse. So pray, by praising effort, strategy, and practice, I'm drawing the attention to how they're making improvements, how they're making a difference to the learning rather than what they are as a person. And that they can change, that can grow. This is fantastic elastic, you know. This, is, this can change, this grows through use and exercise. Um, so have a, have a policy, having a, an agreement as a school. When we praise, we're going to praise the kind of strategy they're using. I love the way you found a new way of doing that. The effort they're putting into it. Goodness me, you kept going when that got difficult. Well done. And the process, you know, talk about the, the methods that they're going to use and what they're planning to do and how they're using them. It's not, however, just about the effort. Uh, I think Carol Dweck has been misinterpreted in that way. It's all about the effort. It's not. I could make a marvelous effort to get through that wall with my head. So it's about effort and strategy, knowing when to give up as well, when to find another route or take a different target. So. Praise is the first thing I'd go for. In fact, you could even ask the question whether to praise at all. Give feedback, yeah, but I would take that even further. Does praise actually take things down as a learner? It's just a, a provocative question. There are other things you can do, loads of other things. Uh, for example, learning warrior of the week. Who's that? Oh, I like that. That's going to happen. Um, warriors get bruised, thumped, dirty and smelly, but the thing about warriors is they keep going. So have that as a celebrated person. You know, who, who, who won that award? You can do that with three and four-year-olds. Uh, I did this in South Korea with a school and they had a little ninja teddy bear. And this got awarded to the learning warrior of the week and the kid had to take the teddy bear home to the parents. What a great way of getting that message home. Hey, why have you brought this bear home? Oh, I'm learning warrior of the week. What's that about? I'll tell you. I was brave. I was courageous. I was tough when it got... So, where possible, again, involve the parents. Communicate this. You know, in an average school hour, you get 25% of a child's waking year. I, I know, it can feel like eternity, but it's only 25% of their waking year. 75%. <coughs> 75% is spent elsewhere, usually with parents. So you may be giving them all of these great growth mindset, language and praise and open-minded, and then they're going home, and they could be hearing well-intentioned messages that saying, you're fit, you're a natural at maths. So they're getting mixed messages there. They're getting kind of fixed mindset messages from home, lovely growth mindset messages at school, if and when possible, and I know it's tricky sometimes, but can you communicate this stuff to parents? Um, when I run parent sessions with schools, the difference that that can make is enormous to get that support, that daily drip, drip, drip message of that growth mindset approach from home as well as school. Um, final points I make. Maybe emphasize that tests are for learning, not for judgment that we're doing a test to see where are we at the moment 
so we know what our next steps are. It's not, here's a verdict about what you are. So I would talk about tests for learning. Um, and Guy indeed mentioned it earlier on. Getting 20 out of 20 doesn't mean anything. And, and parents are hungry for that, aren't they? <laughs> they're, very, they're very sneaky. They're, they know this. They sidle up to you and they, they ask questions like, uh, where, where are they in the class? And you're going, they're coming first. And they go to their wife, darling, we can stop the tutors. Don't worry, they're coming first. And then I add, they're in a class of morons. <laughs> or they're coming 22nd. They're pretty much bottom of the class. But they're surrounded by Einsteins. Comparing yourself to others and getting full marks means nothing. The only real thing that matters is personal bests. Compared to what I could do last time, have I made progress? That's the only criterion you should judge on. So I'd have a praise policy and discussion in the classroom about how did you beat that? So it's the failure in a test is going to inform me about where I need to go next. It's not this is what you are. There's the first five of a list of 30, but try some of those. They work. Thank you. We've got quite uh, concrete actions. Um, James, I imagine if there is an activity such as reading where you have to connect with trial and error and failure and feel good and continue, is reading. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's no, I think it's one of those, one of those areas where effort and practice reinforces itself. But I think the minute you start framing it, um, reading especially in terms of being a test or an exam or there are right or wrong answers, you automatically have kind of failed with the point of reading. You know, when we're adults and we read and we choose to read, we don't do lots of the behaviours around reading that we do at school. You know, when we sit down to read our book in bed before we go to sleep, we don't turn to our partner and suggest a prediction of what we're going to do next and what's going to happen next. We don't summarise it to the person sitting next to us. We don't answer questions about it. Reading isn't a competitive activity. I don't think it's possible really to be better at reading than someone else. Once you can read, you follow your own paths and you read your own things. I've got one kind of practical thing, if you don't mind, which is from when I was a teacher, which I think is a useful thing in terms of learning from failure. And maybe is a useful thing in terms of just dealing with the bumps that are sometimes put in our way by the powers that be, people higher up the food chain. So um, I worked at a school that was part of a group of schools, and uh, they decided that they would introduce from 7 to 11 a termly test and the test would be in reading and in writing and in maths and in science. And all the children across all the schools would do this test. It was a huge waste of time. But what we would do is we thought, well, if we're going to have this test and we have to do it, we're going to try and do as much good with it as we can. So there were two decisions we did. The first thing is, once the children had done it, we took it away from them and we analysed it and thought, OK, these are the things that most of them are pretty good at. These are things that they aren't good at. We use that to inform our teaching. So therefore, it becomes a practical thing. That's the obvious thing, and I think every school does that. The second thing we said is we would always say to the children, that's your first go. So you've had your first go at the test, we'll collect those in, get the scores, and send them off to whoever wants to know about them. Then always, with every assessment we ever gave children, we'd always give it back to them and say, right, there's your test back, sit with your friend, get full marks. And they would have an hour to sit down with their friend with whatever resources they wanted, whether it was the computer, whether it was someone they knew in the class who was really good at that little thing, and they sat together till everyone in the class had one in front of them that said 30 out of 30. 
And I know, you know, that's not a snapshot judgment of how good they are, but they left the classroom, A, thinking, brilliant, I can do this, I can get 30, plus the process of sitting with their friend and working through, they learned loads. And it was often stuff they wouldn't admit to me they didn't know, but they would sort of sit with someone and say, what, seven nines again? Oh, yeah, brilliant, right, stick that in. What do you do with that? Oh, yeah, move it across. I can't kind of get to every single child every single session, but together they could do, and they would all kind of leave a mile high. So that's my practical tip, something that's worked really well for me. Thank you. So we go to Mentimeter and see if you can provide with concrete actions and to the pool of ideas. Here, while I, oops, sorry. While we load the next interactivity, um, okay, we have answers already. Well, while I was, I was made aware by one of the members of the audience, and I need to clarify this, a distinguished member of the audience, that our second question yesterday, the gap, we used this same mechanism, which is a little confusing and may have led to you asking more questions. Uh, so I apologize for th that comment before. You did send us questions because it was a little confusing. The reason we use this mechanism is that it's the only one that allows for upvoting. It's the only one that allows for prioritizing. So we not only use it to ask questions, but we also use it for concrete suggestions like now. So the reason why we may have received a lot of questions for the gap was that we use this type of activity. So now this is your chance uh, to address specifically, like when you say eliminate teacher desks, as specifically, as concretely as possible, what we can do in order to try to minimize this learning from failure issue, the stigma of failure, of fear in the classroom. There are many votes for metacognitive uh, processes. <laughs> Students leading lessons. Disruption again. Self-esteem. Attention. Respecting opinions. Again, the desk. We're going to leave the desk for the next question. Standardized exams, no standardized exams. There is a lot about conversation, dialogue, pair group, group work. teachers as facilitators. Shall we go to question three? And the third and last question is about uh, movement. Uh, which concrete activities could we think of to just start uh, next week as regards the use of spaces? How can we redefine spaces and what actions uh, can we take if we consider the movement of people and furniture and spaces uh, can help active uh, learning? Judy, what do you think about this? 
about learning Spain. Or maybe any one of you who's ready, who's already got a, an idea about how movement and the definition of spaces, how we use learning environments, uh, could really foster active learning. Yes. And I will take it back to my friend Dopamine and recognize that this is the biologic system we have. And the brain will buy in when it recognizes the two factors, a challenge and how it's achievable. Because at the, when it achieves a challenge, it gets this great feeling of pleasure, satisfaction, more motivation to persevere through failures, to take greater risks, to innovate, to create, to change. So watching and individualizing as much as possible to provide the choices, to provide the resources, the media, the text, the flexibility, so that each student has a pathway where they recognize, I can get there, this necessarily through the same method, but my teacher believes I can. They're giving me choices of how to. If I fail in one modality, that's not the only right way to do it. So I'm comfortable moving along. And one of the things we will see when students are comfortable with selecting their pathway, what's achievable for me and a challenge, we'll see them asking more questions and asking for more help. Not, oh, I don't understand, or is this right? But, oh, so is this possible? What about this way to do it? Now we're bringing them back to being in control of their learning, recognizing how their effort is in charge of their progress, and recognizing their potential and their interest, how they can best learn. What did I learn? What made me successful? That metacognition, and part of that is the opportunity for revision on a test, on a paper, on a sport, sporting event. Okay, that wasn't the right way to do it. Okay, what, giving them a chance to think about, to write about, what would I do differently next time, and then providing the opportunity to do it again and get more feedback. That's what we all do in life. That's how I learned surgery and neurology. What did I do wrong? What would I do differently next time? And yes, here's another chance. Thank you. Two suggestions. Um, one is kind of general with an example, and then the second one is going to be kind of funky and conceptual. Uh, so the first one, <clears throat> in terms of space and active learning, I would suggest the idea of having each school having a golden lesson a week. And I mentioned this to some of you earlier on. A golden lesson is not a lesson in which uh, things go brilliantly. A golden lesson is simply a lesson in which you take a risk with how you normally do stuff. And let's say it's Wednesday period two, everybody has got to take a risk. 
And it might just be three minutes of a lesson. It might be an activity you've never tried before and you're just going to give it a go. Dive in, give it a go. Uh, it might be halving your average talk time to see what would happen to responsibility, ownership, and independence. Would less talk time from you change out at all? You're going to go and find out. Uh, it might be, and this is where the physical space might come in, just experimenting with what if I change the arrangement of these seats and where genders sit in relation to each other. Um, so it's not to, to predict what's going to happen necessarily. It's, it's an experiment to find out. In philosophy for children, if we have a specific example from this, this idea of golden lesson, in philosophy for children, where possible, we sit in a circle and the facilitator will sit equally with everyone else so that practically we can see and hear each other. No one is talking to the back of a head. And there's a sense of equality. You know, we, 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 none of us is, you know, I'm, if I'm standing like this, I'm clearly the authority. And if I throw the question out, I ask a pupil and their answer comes back to me. And it goes back out and it comes back to me and it, comes, it goes out and it comes back to me. I've got 50% of the talk time and then you've got 15 or 20 or 30 children trying to grab the remaining minutes. So I would rather sit equally with everyone and encourage them over time to communicate directly with each other, not through me all the time. And the sitting, in terms of space and practice, sitting as a circle helps with that. So you could add little rules like, okay, we're going to have a, a dialogue, but the next person to speak is chosen by the last person to speak, not the teacher. And rather than all, the, <laughs> all of this hyperventilating yoga that can happen, that's not helpful for thinking. So keep it very calm, just have an open hand on the knee. I'd like to speak. And the last person uh, to speak, only when they've finished can hands be put out. You can't say, I want to speak before they've finished. So you can, you can change that a little bit. You can have an open hand. And with the other hand, uh, you can say a thumb up, I'd like to agree with you, and I'd, li I'd li like to say why, or I'm not sure about what you said, or thumb down, I'd like to disagree with you. So you can get agreement, disagreement, and uncertainty into the play of the dialogue. But the circle is the thing that allows that. You know, it's having that space of equality and communicating directly with each other, not staring at the teacher going, what do you want me to say? So... That might be an idea for the, for the space and the arrangement and how it changes the feeling of communication. I think the slightly spacey conceptual suggestion, this is just you know, a little, little thought bomb to play with, is the idea of inner space. So there's that the physical environment is out there. What would it mean to increase the inner space of the child? in terms of their inner landscape and how they feel and how open and refreshing and spacious it feels within them or how closed and tensed and shut down they feel. And part of that story of opening that inner space within them, feeling like it's there's my own experience of my body and my mind is a sort of free mountain breeze feeling. It's not a fearful, tense thing. Part of that is creating a really good, caring dynamic in the classroom where people really love and respect and support each other 
rather than trying to judge and, and put down or feel, bring fear or timidity into the classroom. So I don't know, it's just, it's, it's just struck me now really. Is that another way of thinking about how I want a child to be? I want them to have big, open, spacious, inner sense of being in this classroom rather than something contracted. And then perhaps just have a golden lesson with that. Okay, in this golden lesson, I'm going to see if I can open that space up in all of them. And how would I tell that's worked? So the practical and the, the slightly wacky there, but play with it, see where it goes. And there yes. we go, hooray. I should have learned by now, but every question, la la la. Um, so I've got two kind of practical ones, um, both from schools that I've been to visit recently that I thought were amazing. So one was a school, um, I think it was called St Matthews, in fact it was, and they had a wonderful thing. So they felt kind of quite constrained by their curriculum, they had a national curriculum, they had to follow it to do all the bits and pieces on it, but they wanted just a little tiny bit of wiggle room. So they decided that what they would do is for one term um, out of the three a year, on a Wednesday afternoon, they would suspend the normal curriculum and they would introduce St Matthews University and this was a primary school, but the children would attend St. Matthew's University. And any adult in the school that felt that they could offer tuition on a subject at St. Matthew's University, whether it was linked to school teaching or anything else they could do. So there were teachers that loved sewing at home, but didn't get the chance to ever sew with the children. There was um, one of the PE coaches who was a really good cook. Um, there was somebody who wasn't a PE teacher, but loved rugby, and so on and so on. So they offered on a great big board a selection of different choices and any child that wanted to could sign up for their top three choices and then they would sift them all round. So I think it was one of the teachers who normally taught the 11-year-olds who ran a film club on a Wednesday afternoon and they watched a film and then had these conversations about it. So the children could follow their interests. The teachers got to teach one thing that they really, really loved that was outside of their area. Because it was quite a small amount of time, they still covered the rest of the curriculum and suddenly the children got to kind of see, well, this is what it's like when you're, when you're at university. I'm going to go to university because I get to study whatever I want to study. So it seemed like such a nice little way of just carving a bit of time to do something that's good and joyful um, and sometimes that's reason enough to do something in education. The second one I suppose is about actually moving and shuffling children about. I've been to visit a couple of schools that have a system called reading buddies. So rather than always reading with a teacher, always reading with the same adult, um, everybody in the school is allocated a reading buddy. And once upon a time in the week, so maybe, you know, for 20 minutes on a Wednesday morning, everyone gets up, shuffles off, and goes and finds their reading buddy. And sometimes their reading buddy is an adult. Sometimes it's a teacher or a support staff member. Sometimes it's a parent volunteer. Sometimes it's another child. And they sit down with their reading buddy, and they enjoy a book together. And no, they choose who reads to each other, and they listen, and they share it, and they enjoy it. It's a great way of kind of doing different things and having this little bit of special time. As you might have a teacher that teaches older children who gets to meet for a whole term, once a week, someone else who really likes Marvel books, and they sit down and share one together, and everyone looks forward to it. That's one model of doing it, which has seemed really, really nice. And the children that don't get that reading at home get it with someone at school. Another school did the same sort of thing, and this is the last thing I'll say, and they um, decided that they, they got their um, year fives, their ten-year-olds, and once a week they would go down and read with year two, who are six and seven, and they would go and sit down with them, 
and they would hear them read and they would share a book together. And they noticed that the younger children benefited it from hugely because they'd get ready to read with this older child and they wanted to impress them and they were all excited to see them and it gave them a friend that they'd wave to around as they walked around the school. So they loved it. But they also noticed the older children got loads out of it because they were responsible. They were suddenly the teacher. Once a week, they were responsible for someone else's reading and they loved to choose just the right book to share with their reading buddy and so on and so on. So thought this works brilliantly for both age groups. I wonder what would happen if we got our year twos to go down to, to reception to our four-year-olds. How would that work? So again, they tried that out for a term, and again, it worked brilliantly. The younger children loved reading to an older child. The older child loved reading to a younger child, and it worked really brilliantly. So they thought, well, I wonder what would happen if we got our reception, our four-year-olds, to go into the nursery once a week and read with them. So I was there on the day they did it. It is the best thing I have ever seen in any school ever, guaranteed. So there's a load of nursery children sat on the carpet with their books, waiting, like watching the door. And in walked reception, these five-year-olds, and they were about a mile high. And they like strutted in, scooped up their little child, sat them down. Often there wasn't much difference in the reading level between the two children, but it didn't matter. They were just kind of piecing together a story together. But for these four and five-year-olds to be kind of responsible for somebody else and to feel like they're kind of grown up, like you, you, can't, you can't buy that anywhere else in the curriculum. So those would be my kind of two practical, useful things that I've seen that are handy. Inner spaces, sharing with others, spaces with others, large groups, small groups, learning spaces, outdoors, indoors. These are their ideas. Now, Mentimeter.com, which are yours. As we browse, sorry, Silvana, as we browse through the, the final questions and uh, we get your input, all of these answers in their prioritized order will be on the blog as from tomorrow, together with all the materials from the conference, including summaries of the talks, some of the personality insights. As you can tell, all of your suggestions are pulled together. So once again, we empower you to go back to your respective environments, to your schools, and uh, disseminate this information, head teachers, coordinators, teachers, educators at large. This is uh, the voice of the educators in our schools who have chosen to commit to coming for a two-day conference on their weekend. It is a, a legitimate representative voice of all these things that can be done in our schools as from tomorrow. And the challenge that, is, that awaits us is uh, how we make it happen. No, Silvana? Especially the speakers. I believe that one thing is to prepare yourself and come to a conference and deliver your area of expertise. But uh, these speakers, and including uh, Guy Claxton, who's now, I think, on the plane, leaving, uh, they had really to stretch themselves. What we proposed to them was, okay, a keynote, safe ground, but after that, uh, working on the ideas that you generated 
and having this uh, um, information coming through, uh, uh, through a different, I would say, uh, input, trying to adapt and repeating that with another group, with another kind of input. And it really takes a, a lot of risk for speakers who could really safely deliver their area of expertise. So I especially want to thank uh, Judy, Will, and James, because James, you didn't uh, fight uh, or, or had to work with, so with software, but you accepted to be in the panel, right? And uh, you said, let's go for it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for that effort. And uh, thank you. Thank you for stretching yourself, for being there for a new learning, in fact. Thank you for really accepting to work in a new software never used in the type of activities that we delivered. I want to thank you, Gabriel, for all the effort, all the back uh, uh, work you did.